This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System, which is the company I started after I wrote the book Built to Sell. You know, if you're interested in working with us, what we're going to have you do is start by completing your Value Builder questionnaire. We're going to give you a score out of a possible 100, and that's going to relate to how acquirers would view your business. The lower the score, the worse off you are, the higher the score, the better you are. And the average business who starts with us gets a score of 59 out of possible 100. Now, if you work with us over time, we're going to have you work on these eight key drivers of your company's value. Think, things like recurring revenue, structure of your management team, your financial performance, your growth potential. And at the end of that process, if you're able to get your score up to a score of 80 or greater, we can see statistically, now having worked with more than 20,000 businesses, that you're going to go on to improve the value of your business by an average 71%. So there's a demonstrable economic benefit to working with us. The first step is to get your value builder score. And you're going to do that by going to valuebuildersystem.com. I think you're in for a special treat because this interview is with a guy named Kevin Cruz. So Kevin's a New York Times bestselling author, written six books, um, had a number of different companies that he started and exited. I had Kevin focus in on one specific company, a business called Axiom, um, for this interview because I think it had so many amazing lessons embedded within it. First one to have a listen for is how he financed the growth of the company. He was able to get a million dollars of startup equity for this business, which ultimately he ended up regretting the the overall deal structure. So I want you to have a listen to how he structured the deal, how you might structure it differently using the same methodology. Have a listen for how Kevin's life changed after the sale. There may be some nuggets in there of wisdom as well for you as you approach your exit. Without further ado, here's Kevin Cruz. Kevin, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John, great to be here. So tell me a little bit about this company, Axiom. What did you guys do? Yeah, Axiom, it was, I mean, basically it was a professional service firm, but our specialty was in creating uh, corporate training programs specifically targeted at the life science industry. So, you know, if a pharmaceutical company had a new drug that they were going to launch, uh, my company, Axiom, would, would actually develop the, uh, the training materials for the sales representatives or other, you know, key personnel inside the, uh, in the company, everything from anatomy and physiology to how the drug works to how you actually uh, sell it and position it to a physician. And why didn't they just do that stuff in-house? I think some of them tried doing a little bit of that in-house, but I think in uh, this world of corporate training, um, it's, you really need to, to do a lot. I mean, some of the modules would need to be video modules. So you'd need studios and all of that kinds of things. Sometimes they were audio modules and increasingly they were e-learning modules. And that was sort of a, a strong suit for us. So we would, I mean, back in the earlier days, it would be delivering everything on multimedia CD-ROMs and then increasingly, uh, e-learning. So, you know, to put a total program together, we would have, physicians and medical writers and PhDs who understood the science. We would have instructional designers who specialized in adult learning theory and right on down to software engineers that were coding it up and developing learning management systems. So some of our clients had pieces of those things in-house, but uh, usually they needed to create it, you know, so quickly and with a level of expertise that, you know, they stuck to what they did best, which was 
launch and sell drugs and let us worry about the, the best in class training programs. So how did you get into that space? Yeah, I kind of fell into it. Um, I uh, started my first company when I was young and dumb right out of college and failed miserably and tried a few of them. And I ended up uh, getting hired by a gentleman who had a very small company that was doing educational software games, things like Jeopardy and Tic-Tac-Toe, but he would sell them to corporate training departments that would use them as a fun way to, you know, sort of test their employees. And that opened my eyes to just the world of corporate education. And I was always kind of a, you know, software geek and um, put the two things together. And originally, uh, John, I mean, it was one of the lessons I learned, you know, I didn't have any real market focus. So we were developing programs for uh, companies in all kinds of industries, Coca-Cola down in Atlanta and Prudential Insurance in New Jersey and tech companies in California. Uh, but eventually, you know, I later realized that there's some real power to just dominating a niche. And so when I launched Axiom, I made a conscious decision that we would only service the life science industry. And that was a great decision. I mean, the more I niched down, the, the more dramatically the revenues grew. And so tell me about the revenues. You started in 2003. What were they up to by the time you, uh, you actually sold business? Yeah, so after about five years, we were on a, a $12 million run rate, a million dollars a month. And, um, you know, that was starting uh, from scratch. It wasn't uh, my first company, but every time I've done one, you know, I had non-competes and non-solicitation. So, you know, I was employee number one, uh, not allowed to touch anybody I knew on either the employee side or the client side. So it was, um, you know, day one, cold calling for employees and cold calling for clients. Uh, but, uh, you know, things, things went our way. And so we got it to that million dollar a month mark in about year four. Wow. And so was there a lot of recurring revenue, uh, or were these kind of projects that were big and chunky and then you move on to the next one? <laughs> well, I, I tried to get as much recurring revenue uh, as possible, but it was a challenge. I mean, I think that there was recurring revenue in the simple definition of, we would deliver great work and great work leads to more work. So we had great uh, account penetration and every year our existing clients would double in the amount of business they gave us. But it wasn't a true recurring revenue model uh, the way you would think of a software as service company. Um, I wish it was and we certainly had a few little products that we would sell on a licensed basis. But that was the minority uh, part of our revenue. I mean, you know, from an accounting standpoint, from an acquisition standpoint, most people just looked at us as a, a fast-growing service business. And so did you finance the entire business yourself? Did you have outside investors or partners in helping you get there? Yeah, this was one of the, this was probably the most unique deal I've ever seen, you know, whether I've been the investor or the entrepreneur. Um, I decided not to bootstrap this one. I decided not to go the venture capital route. And instead, it was uh, a strategic partnership. There was a, a, a larger private company that had wanted to get into this space. And so uh, we basically struck a deal where he funded, uh, you know, I, I was given full control, named CEO, and had half the equity. He took the other half of the equity and uh, funded it up to the first million dollars, which I did burn through uh, in the first year. Uh, but the caveat on all this was that, and I know it's leading into your, your, your questions coming up, is that he had an option that he could execute after three years uh, for a pre-negotiated price. So depending on how you looked at it, this is a very unusual, you know, a strategic partner type funding deal. Uh, 
you know, it was either the best employment agreement, you know, I ever saw or the worst venture capital agreement I ever saw, you know, one or the other. Um, no regrets in doing it because uh, it made sense at the time, uh, but it's, it's not your standard deal. So tell me a little bit more about that. So when you started the business, you have this partner, they want to get into this space. They say, here you go, Kevin, here's a million dollars and half of the equity in this company. Right. Go build it. With right. the one caveat that in four years time, we've got an option to buy you out. Is that, is that the idea? Yeah, yeah that, exactly. After three years, they had the option uh, to, to buy me out, to buy my half out uh, so that they would then have you know complete control and all the equity. And it was negotiated um, uh, on a, uh, I, I can't remember the exact um, metric, but it, it was basically like a, a seven times income or seven times EBITDA type model, which is a, a fairly standard, and it might be somewhere five to seven with, with some kickers or something, but it was a fairly standard uh, valuation model, but... Um, as I learned later, you know, it really, I, I was foolish in that, you know, it didn't really represent the value, the true value of the company because of the growth rate. You thought it was worth more. Yeah, it definitely was worth more. <laughs> and how do you know that? What, what outside information are you using to, 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 well, the, the, before I answer that, I mean, you know, the, the, just sort of the logic of it, if you, let's say you just have two, two companies that are each just keeping it simple, each doing a million dollars a year in revenue. Well, if one company's been doing a million dollars a year in revenue for a hundred years, so there's no growth. I mean, the odds are they're only going to ever do a, a million dollars a year. But if you got another company that you know got to that million dollars, you know, in six months or in one year, you know, there's a sign that they've hit on something. And the next year they'll probably do two million, and the next year maybe three or four. And you know, that's those future dollars are worth more today. And so because, you know, I was I grew a company that was doubling in size every year, um, it was valued. There was no nothing in that valuation mechanism to account for that. So it got priced at a metric as if we were a, a, a sleepy, no growth, but good company. Um, and it really didn't didn't uh, uh, take into account the growth factor. Now, the outside metric was um, my uh, partner did immediately execute because he realized what a value it was. He did immediately execute and bought me out. And then uh, unbeknownst to me, he had already negotiated an, a sale of his larger company. He had about eight of us that he had this model. So we were all eight companies wrapped into his larger company. And he immediately flipped us all and sold us, sold his now larger company, you know, to an outside buyer, you know, a bigger fish. And they they paid uh, a higher multiple than what he paid me. So uh, you know there was an immediate validation that he arbitra he basically arbitraged it. I mean, clever for him. You know, it just wasn't good for for me. Do you know what his multiple was on the back end? I, I don't know the. Uh, I, I I'm not at liberty to share the exact multiple, but it was a multiple that was higher than mine and had um, a three year growth kicker in it. And the reason why I know that, John, is because. His deal fell apart when they found out I only had a one-year non-compete. So they went to go sign with him, and then they realized that uh, his largest, fastest-growing division, which was my division, was recently acquired, and the founder key employee only had a one-year non-compete. And suddenly they were worried that I would just basically quit, take a year off at the beach, and then 
set up shop, take the clients, take the employees, and they would lose, you know, this, this 12 to $20 million asset that they were acquiring. So they forced him uh, to get me into a three-year non-compete. And it was a, it was, you know, a rough set of negotiations, but he base I basically got my stock back and then resold it to them at the same time he sold. So I sold the same company twice in about 90 days. <laughs> You're the only guy ever to appear on Built to Sell Radio that has done that. Just give you <laughs> I think it might be the only guy on the planet that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. ever done that. Wow, what a story. Because you knew you had negotiating leverage at this point because he's, he's looking down the barrel of a gun saying, if I don't get Cruz to sign this, um, my deal falls apart. Yeah. And, and John, it's funny that, you know, business, um, <laughs> I have found is often stranger and has more drama and emotion than even movies. I mean, I think a lot of outsiders think it's all boring and serious and logical. And, you know, this, I mean, it's all fine, you know, but it, it was a night where literally, I mean, I'm driving home at midnight and, uh, or almost midnight and, the the big buyer calls me from London saying, listen, this whole deal is going to die in six minutes if you don't change your terms. I mean, it's literally these midnight phone calls and ticking clocks and lots of emotions and anger and harsh words being said. Um, but like usual, when money's involved, I mean, people will will do what's logical and what's right for, for themselves. And, um, you know, we were both able to just make a logical decision and move on. Because it, I guess at the end of the day, you, you did not feel you were being fairly compensated for the first buyout based on the growth rate. Even though it was a deal you'd sort of agreed to four years prior, I mean, all bets were off when, had, because of the speed at which you'd grown it. Yeah. And, and I mean, it isn't that it was unfair. I mean, I signed the deal with open eyes and, you know, it was fair and square. There was nothing wrong with, with him executing his option. Um, it just gave me tremendous leverage only because I knew what the true value of just my piece was. I knew the value of the arbitrage between what he paid me and what he was about to get. And I believed the buyer who I heard it, you know, at almost midnight from his own mouth that I was the key to the deal. So, you know, it was just one of those things where, uh, even though I didn't like the first amount of money I got, you know, I was all, I already had financial flexibility. I didn't, I could have just quit and been fine. So it wasn't like I needed the job or the paycheck or he had any financial leverage on me. It was just, what's the price of me sitting on the sidelines for three years versus one year. And, um, given that I, you know, had, had grown very quickly, you know, a multimillion dollar business, I think everybody knew that every year that I was sitting on the sidelines was both valuable to them and costing me so that we just had to sort of meet in the middle on that number. So have you now gone back into the business to compete with the buyer in the same space? God, no, I, um, <laughs> you know, I left about a year after, uh, that deal got, got executed and, and before the full earnout was realized, you know, which is rare also for founders. Cause there, I left before, you know, I could have been driving even more upside and I decided to just let it go as it was. But um, I've been pursuing uh, another passion of mine, which is writing books. So I've just been, you know, writing books for the last uh, five, six years and um, working with uh, nonprofits. And, and doing a really good job. I mean, you've had three or four New York Times bestsellers, as I understand. Uh, six books, one New York Times bestseller, lots of Amazon bestsellers. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. That is a, an amazing achievement. 
to go back to the deal for a moment, you mentioned the the earnout. Uh, the earnout was as structured as part of the the first sale, the one where there was a predetermined strike price. That, no, no, okay. No, that that was part of the problem. I mean, I think you know, I learned uh, in other deals, and as you know, John, I mean that, you know. It, when there's valuation problems, there's usually not a very serious problem. It's just a math equation. And so there's often, you know, it's the value and then the terms, are you going to get paid everything on day one or is it payments over three, four, five years? And then are there any adjustments that can be made to the deal? And always the person who's selling the company thinks it's probably worth more or will be worth more in the future. The buyer might not think it's worth as much or wants to hedge that future risk. And so, um, you know, I didn't get it on that first deal. That was part of the problem. It was just low standard, no growth valuation with no, no future earnout. It was just kind of done. And um, the second flip that, that happened shortly thereafter, basically it was like, hey, let's set the, the seven times profit uh, valuation on today's number. But then every year, if you grow your profit, we'll recalculate it and pay you, you know, the increased value. So it was saying, keep growing this business and incentivizing us to grow the business because we'll just keep ratcheting up that valuation over the next three years, which was, uh, you know, a good way to, to, to really keep everybody focused on that growth. And how long did you stick it out in the earnout? How many years? Just the one year? I mean, for, for, for that one, it was just a year. I just couldn't uh, take it any longer. I had done other deals where I stayed in. I had a three-year earnout and I stayed five. So, you know, I think it says a lot about um, who's buying your company and how they treat you and, and your division and what their plans are. And, you know, it was like night and day. Again, I had seen it where I could have earlier, I could have bailed out of a company and I chose to stay because it felt great. In their case, I was right in the middle of the earnout, and it felt horrible. So it just wasn't worth the dollars, and I walked. What was what was so horrible about the earnout for people who haven't gone through an earnout? I mean, describe it. What 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 was such a frustration for you that you 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 walked? Well, away? it had it just had more to do with with the acquiring company, not the earnout itself. I will tell you. Um, Earnouts are very stressful, I think. And, and you know, the good news is you've sold your company and now you have a chance to make even more money by growing profit. Usually it's based on profit most often, um, you know, for the next year, two years, three years. But you get you all of a sudden for, for people who haven't done it. I mean, that clock is ticking and your awareness on every dollar really changes because let's just say your company was was valued at five times profit. I'll just use that as a, as a you know, standard low number. Well then, you know, do, and you've, you've just um, gone through a toll on the highway and paid a dollar to the toll collector. Do you ex turn that in on your expense report like you would normally do and get your dollar back for that business trip? Or all of a sudden in your mind, you're like, wait a minute, if I don't turn that dollar in on my expense report, I get $5 back on that later because I'm getting five times profit. And all of a sudden, you know, owners start doing these funny things where uh, literally will not turn in expense reports because it's like a five to one or a seven to one or more dangerously, you, it, it warps your decisions. So I could say, geez, you know, I really should um, invest in a new trade show booth for that big conference we're going to, to land some future clients. But that booth's going to cost twenty-five thousand dollars in real dollars, which means 
that's $125,000 out of my pocket. And you, you extend that later and say, oh, we should hire some employees to build that next software module and stay up with the competition. But then that little devil in your voice says, wait a minute, you can invest $100,000 now, but that's going to cost you $500,000 on the earnout. So the problem with earnouts for the entrepreneur, for the for the original owner, is it warps your, you know, it warps you down into extreme short-term thinking. Now, again, you know, there's ways around it. A, a savvy buyer will know that this is going on and will say, listen, you know, we're going to let you invest. You tell us what you want to invest in. If it makes sense, we're going to do that investment from the corporate books and it won't sit on your your individual PL or we'll cover that trade show booth out of the corporate marketing because we're looking for the long term. We won't make that clip your short term PL. But it not everybody's as savvy about that. So there, there's some warping of of behaviors, you know, in these kinds of earnouts. Kevin, is it possible to, you know, paper those deals uh so that corporates require to make those investments uh that you don't want to hit your PL? Yeah, John, I've seen deals that try to do that. It's hard to anticipate everything, but I have seen where uh, to handle the expense report thing, you can write in terms like that the, the partners, the selling partners will get $1,000 a month or some fixed amount to cover miscellaneous or incidental expenses. So there's no questioning uh, about that. Other times it'll get papered in that you as the selling entrepreneur will maintain uh, existing percentage levels on R&D and marketing. So uh, it's a way for them to make sure you don't gut marketing or that you don't stop investing in your product. So if I invested 5% of revenue in marketing last year, they're going to they're gonna say that's how much you have to invest next year as well, unless we you know, both agree there's a reason to go below it or, or above it. So you know, there's ways to kind of protect that. And, and most of the time, if it's a good relationship, and everybody wants it to be a good relationship, because if you're on an earnout, it's you're working with these people for years. Um, usually that can all be worked out, you know, verbally. You say, hey, we didn't anticipate this thing. What can we do? And and it even extends to time. I mean, you know, if if all of a sudden, you know, someone acquires you and you're the hot shot in the company and your expertise can be used in other areas, well, it makes sense for the big company for you to go and jump into another silo and help them land a key account. But if that's taking time away from your PL, you're going to be hesitant to do that. So there's also ways to say, listen, you know, your personal end of the year bonus is going to be based on not, you know, new customers of your business, but new customers for other people's business. And so there's lots of ways to try to address it. But a lot of it has to just work, get negotiated after the fact. Got it. When you look back at Axiom as sort of the long arc of history, the, the, the five years, and it's been some time now to reflect, I mean, and this isn't your only rodeo. I mean, you've been involved in business exits before. As you just look at Axiom as a period of time, is there one thing that you found that you learned from the experience that was brand new that, that maybe you can impart on other listeners that maybe you're just about to go through the process of selling? Yeah, I, I think, um, and John, I know you preach this too. I think in terms of while you're you're building your business, uh, you know, it, it'll have more value if it can exist without you. And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they put themselves, you know, in the middle of, the, you know, the hub of the wheel and they're the key employee. 
And that actually hurts your business, certainly your business valuation down the road. Nobody wants to buy a business if they think, you know, you get hit by a bolt of lightning and there's no business left anymore. So the more you can productize your service, the more you can have uh, truly talented and semi-independent direct reports. So if you get hit by a bus, they're still running the business. Um, and it's kind of counterintuitive, but you don't want to toot your own horn when people come around and start sniffing your company to buy. You don't want to say, I did this and I invented that and that was my idea. They don't want to hear how great you are. They want to hear that the team is great. So, I mean, that's something that I think is, is really important. And then, you know, the big lesson again for me, uh, John, on Axiom was just I hadn't thought through uh, the valuation <laughs> The pre-negotiated valuation was unusual in itself, and then they buy it. That would have been a fine valuation. With the growth factor, I think that's uh, something that I just didn't anticipate. So now you're into writing books, and 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 that's a new life in and of itself. And you're also involved in not-for-profits. I mean, how has your relationship with money changed? Uh, it sounds like the you're you know you're not. You know, you're not searching your pockets for for nickels to pay the rent anymore. So, how has your attitude towards money changed, having had these sort of exit events? Yeah, I, I mean, I learned a lot about that too. Um, first thing is, you know, I'm. It's remarkable how fast the money can disappear, even after selling your business. And um, you know, in my case, I I uh, have an ex-wife who, within a couple of weeks of selling the business you know, uh, let me know that, that, uh, you know, we were, we were going to be on a path of splitting up. And so, you know, she, within a year, you know, half of what I sold for was gone and I'm mean, completely blindsided, you know, um, other, <laughs> other friends of mine who have had exits and, and kept their wives, they have found ways to, um, blow the money on ridiculous things like race horses and race cars and artwork. And what, you know, everybody thinks, they're an angel investor. So you get some money selling your business and then you're writing 50 and 100,000 checks to all these people, you know, with great ideas and those all disappear. So, I mean, that's one thing I've learned is that, uh, man, you know, you feel so good getting that big check uh, on your exit and it can disappear quickly on you. And I'd caution people to be very uh, slow with the spend and mindful of, of the potential for that to happen. Uh, not to mention the tax check you write, you know, right away as well. Do you but also, do you think your ex knew <laughs> that you were planning to sell and, and waited intentionally? Uh, I don't think it, um, she definitely knew I was planning to sell. Um, and John, I don't, I don't put it like anytime a relationship, a, a marriage, you know, doesn't work out. You know, I think there's reasons from both sides. So I certainly am not blaming her thinking it. she, you know, had calculated it. I think what happened was that, um, you know, after years of, of uh, you know, being married to an entrepreneur and we were raising three young kids and having all the semi-normal stresses that young parents and, you know, hardworking uh, parents have, um, you know, there obviously was not a connection there the way there was when we got married. And I think the trigger, I don't think it was planned in advance, but you know, once she saw the amount of money that was in our personal bank account, it was very easy for her to see that she could she could live the rest of her life without having to work or worry about a standard of living. And I think that triggered some options in her mind that unfortunately, uh, you know, played through. And 
in, you know, the, anytime kids are involved, I, um, I can't feel good about it for myself or, or for others. But other than that, I mean, in, with hindsight, I mean, it was a good thing. We were not happy in the relationship we were in. Uh, so this kind of triggered uh, a move and it's been years later. I mean, we're still good friends and co-parenting great and, you know, really happy with our lives and where we're at today. So, um, you know, I certainly don't blame her for, I don't think it was calculated, but it was a triggering event. And I've seen that work in both directions. I've seen the business owners get flush with uh, uh, cash and sports cars and exotic travel and end up straying from their families in really awful ways uh, as well. Such, such important lessons that uh, we don't set out to uh, share in this uh, episode but, or this podcast, but, but uh, I really appreciate that you uh, have been uh, so candid with that. It's, uh, it's yeah. a great lesson for sure. Uh, Kevin, you, you, where do people find you? I mean, you've got, you've got so many books and so many ways to reach out. So what's the best way for people to kind of find you and learn about what you're doing these days? Yeah, I, I mean, the best way is uh, if they go to the website 15timesecrets.com, 15timesecrets.com. That's the site for the new book, 15 Secrets Successful People Know About Time Management. Um, I'm at kevincruz.com, K-R-U-S-E, and I'm on LinkedIn and all the social media channels. So shouldn't be too hard to track me down. Kevin Cruz, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.